Greetings. Welcome to Wikisurfer, a kind of experiment in podcast storytelling. Basically, the format is this. Two guys, Brandon Fibbs and Kyle Sullivan, will each pick a starting topic on Wikipedia, crack it open, and see what hides inside. Moving purely on curiosity, hopping from hyperlink to hyperlink, they pick the best, weirdest, and most wonderful stories possible. Happy surfing. Before we begin today's surf, I wanted to address some sensitive issues in today's episode. First off, this episode contains a discussion about profanity, and as such, there are uh, more than a few, shall we say, colorful metaphors bandied about. Some listeners might find them objectionable. Secondly, at least one of those words is, as our culture has come to refer to it, the N-word. Kyle and I had a long discussion about how to address the N-word when we recorded. Should I say the word or only use its euphemistic doppelganger, as I am now? Ultimately, when we hit the record button, I decided to say the word itself. Sure, the discussion is academic in nature, which should, I hoped, render it inert, or, at the very least, lessen the blow to some of our listeners. But more than that, I'm a big believer that while words matter, and while words can most certainly be used to injure and attack, they ultimately have no more power than what we give them. They are not magic incantations in the face of which we are powerless and we should not cede that to them. But I also recognize that I'm saying that as a white man, and if you are a listener of color, perhaps you feel differently. And I also recognize that we find ourselves, all of us, currently embroiled in a very messy debate on how we are allowed to address the descriptive structure of race relations, much less race relations themselves. And it's a crucial debate to have. And so I wanted to warn you, I say the N-word once in the coming hour, Though Kyle and I decided on a compromise that I hope strikes a good balance between empathy and respect on one side and not wanting to consent to the tyranny of language on the other. I have no wish to insult or offend anyone, so we've kept them in, but bleeped them out. Some of you likely find this solution silly. Others probably think it didn't go far enough. I just hope, once you've heard the piece, that we can all agree that the context in which the word is used is the pursuit of greater understanding and compassion for all. And with that... Let's get started. Okay, Brandon, have you ever wanted to start your own country? These days, Kyle, just about every day. Uh, Another question. Off the top of your head, how many countries, proper nation states, are there in the world? Last I checked, it's just over 200. Like, I want to say 205, something like that. Uh, well, Google tells me that there are 195 sovereign nation states. So you're you're not you weren't that far off. It was pretty close. Uh, another question: Can you tell me what criteria makes a country? No, I have no idea. Well, there isn't a lot of agreement on this. Surprisingly, uh, the declarative theory of statehood lists the following as requirements. Territory. A country is a sovereign state if it controls a defined territory, population, has a permanent population, government, is united under a singular government, relations, and if it has a capacity to enter into relations with other states. Now, maybe I can think of some exceptions to each of these rules. And they are a touch on the vague side, too, especially that last one. However, a far more simple definition comes from the constitutive theory of statehood. Recognition. 
which defines a state as a person of international law if and only if it is recognized as sovereign by other states. Someone else has got to recognize you if you really want to sit at the big international tables. For example, the first nations to recognize the United States were Morocco, France, and the Lenape people. Morocco, in December of 1777, announced to several European countries that it intended to receive ships bearing the new American flag in Moroccan ports. Formal treaties of alliance were signed with France in February 1778 and the Lenape in September 1778. This definition is the easiest to wrestle with, especially considering that nation-states are a relatively new phenomenon in human existence. I mean, it seems a settled matter. The state. The state. But it's actually a brand new thing, and the definitions for such have changed across its short history. Uh, just as a side note, Morocco is the oldest U.S. ally by treaty. The follow-up treaty in 1786 between the U.S. and Morocco is the longest unbroken treaty relationship in U.S. history. The only building outside of the United States designated as a National Historic Landmark, the United States Legation and Consulate Building in Tangier, housed American diplomats for 140 years, the longest single building to be occupied by a U.S. diplomatic post. That surprised me. I was always told that France was our oldest ally. Now, there are many reasons why one country might or might not recognize another country in the world as independent and sovereign. But... Curiously, there is no real criteria for which countries can follow in order to recognize a new independent state. Mostly, as it may become clear, established nation-states do this on a case-by-case -case basis, as it serves their immediate political needs. The difference between de facto and de jure states illustrates this. So, de facto states... De facto state. ...are those which exist practically in reality. De facto governments are those actually doing the day-to-day -day of governing, even if someone or some law doesn't consider that government to be legitimate. And de jure states, de jure states are those which are legally recognized as official but are, for some reason or another, not in control of a territory or nation. Most states are both de facto, practically government, and de jure, considered official. But sometimes states are only de jure. An example might be the several European governments during World War II, which were seen as the legitimate governments of territories under de facto control of the Nazis. Palestine is another example, where Israel is in de facto control over a territory claimed by the Palestinian Authority, which is seen by many as the de jure government. Thus, for the first time since the Roman legion destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, the Jewish people have a nation of their own. You can see the limitation of this organic, freestyle arrangement of recognizing independent nations. There is no real protocol for how to do it. It just depends on what a nation-state's political aims are and the contemporary political context. As a further example of this, France. France's support of the United States during the American War for Independence comes down to France and Britain not getting along. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Remember Morocco from earlier? Morocco! 
Morocco announced its intentions to accept U.S. ships in its ports to European countries, but it didn't announce this to the United States directly. It took another decade for the U.S. and Morocco to enter into a formal treaty of alliance, as it did with France and the Lenape. Is that really all it took? Just, hey, you can park your ships here? Do you sign a treaty of alliance or friendship or something? Do you enter into a trade agreement? How do you even do this when there are no established diplomatic personnel? How do you recognize if one diplomat coming from a brand new country is really official? This shows us that there hasn't been any one way for an established nation to recognize a new one. An established nation can basically choose the method of recognition themselves. Today, the desire to recognize a new nation state might even be announced on Twitter. And also, being recognized by another nation is no guarantee that a new nation will become official or that they will survive in a practical sense. Take Northern Cyprus as an example. The Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. Northern Cyprus, or the Turkish Republic of North Cyprus, is located on the island of Cyprus in the eastern Mediterranean. It is different than the regular Republic of Cyprus, which is seen by the world as the legitimate de jure state of the island of Cyprus. The regular Republic of Cyprus. By contrast, only Turkey recognizes the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. So just to clarify, that's Northern Cyprus and regular Cyprus. Both countries actually split the capital city of Nicosia. I know this is confusing, as such arrangements typically are, but this whole situation is tense and is actually a geopolitical territorial tug of war between Greece, Greece. and Turkey. Turkey. Two countries that have not gotten along very well lately. I mean, it's way more complicated than that. Cyprus as a whole became independent from Britain in 1960, and disagreements over how they should govern themselves led to the island's current predicament. Northern Cyprus's bid for official recognition began over 30 years ago, and a few nation-states got on board early, like Pakistan and Bangladesh, but backed out because of a UN resolution which declared Northern Cyprus legally invalid. Really, the UN refused to recognize Northern Cyprus because of some pre-existing treaties with the regular Republic of Cyprus. But really, what new country has let a pre-existing treaty stop them? Truthfully, it is all based on contemporary international politics. And because only Turkey recognizes Northern Cyprus, Northern Cyprus doesn't have a whole lot of opportunities. Entering into a trade agreement, for example, is only possible with countries that recognize you as sovereign. Thus, Northern Cyprus depends entirely on Turkey. You can see right away that even having a single country recognize you as independent doesn't mean you get to sit at the big international tables. Lately, however, Azerbaijan and Gambia have increased informal contact with Northern Cyprus. So, maybe one day? Another interesting example is an attempted nation-state called the State of the Cross. Cross. Which was an indigenous Maya nation-state in the 19th century. It existed on the Yucatan Peninsula, largely where the modern Mexican state of Quintana Roo is now. And it is worth noting that this is a Maya bid for independence. 
Many of my fellow Americans may assume that the Maya died out long ago, but they existed throughout the contact and colonial period. Indeed, there are about 7 million Maya living in the region of southern Mexico and northern Central America today. By contrast, pre-Columbian population estimates for the Maya are about 8 million. So, the State of the Cross began as a movement of resistance against another separate bid for independence. In the 1840s, Spanish Creoles had declared the Yucatan Peninsula as an independent nation-state from Mexico, who itself was newly independent as of 1810. The Spanish Creoles, or Yucatecos, and the Maya did not get along. So the Maya resisted the Yucatecos, establishing their own bid for independence. This is known as the Caste War of Yucatan, which peaked in 1848. This wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. The Maya had been resisting colonial conquest for centuries. First from the Spanish, and then from the newer Mexican nation-state, they were ready to defend themselves, and they did. Again, like with the island of Cyprus, this is a fairly complex situation that I'm oversimplifying here. But to make matters more complex, the U.S. was also involved. The United States was fighting a war with Mexico during this time frame. And this was the Yucateco's second bid for independence as a whole. Both bids for independence came down to disagreements with Mexico's new central government. Per the context of the Mexican-American War, the Yucateco state even went to the United States and offered to be annexed by the U.S. in exchange for help against Mexico and the Mayans. This was in the age of manifest destiny, and some Americans were really excited about this arrangement. A, quote, Yucatan bill discussing annexation even passed the U.S. House of Representatives. It failed in the Senate. Can you imagine today the Yucatan as a U.S. state? In the 1850s, Great Britain recognized the State of the Cross as a de facto independent nation. That's a pretty big win. Great Britain, by the mid-19th century, was a powerful empire spanning the globe. So getting British recognition was serious winning. But here's the thing. Britain was acting in its own interests, as the Maya state had significant trade relations with British Honduras, and the United States, seeking to limit British influence in the Gulf of Mexico, an area the U.S. considered, quote, a basin of water belonging to the United States, surely must have factored into Britain's decision to help the Maya. This proves again that there is no universal roadmap to independence. It's all based on the politics on the ground in the moment. Britain maintained this stance for nearly half a century even helping to sponsor talks and connections between the Maya state and the Yucateco state and Mexico. Meanwhile, the Maya state and the Yucatecos kept fighting, and fighting specifically over a Mayan city called Bacalar for the umpteenth time. Maya forces slaughtered everyone in the Bacalar garrison there, mostly Yucatecos, but the slaughter also included some British citizens, which prompted Britain to withdraw support for the Maya state. And that was it for the Mayan bid for independence. The Yucateco state eventually let Mexico absorb it, with concessions, of course, in order to protect themselves from the Maya. The Mexican army would occupy portions of the state of the cross through the early years of the 20th century. But that was the end of a free Maya state. However, 
It was not the end of the resistance, which continued throughout the 20th century in one form or another. Even today, the Maya are very resilient, a very willful group of people. So it all comes down to politics and on-the-ground context, and luck. Ideally, smart independence movements will make themselves attractive as puppet states, or at least as allies to stronger, more established nation-states, which in turn will lead to a flurry of recognition from other established states. With the case of the young United States, that seemed to work alongside its military efforts against Britain. For northern Cyprus, getting recognition from a powerful ally hasn't worked. The sole recognition by Turkey doesn't seem to amount to much. And for the Maya state and the Yucatecos, the results are mixed. Neither state exists today, but both tried everything from armed resistance to appealing to world powers. The state of the cross even had the recognition of the most powerful empire in the world at the time, and now Mexico is the de facto de jure government of the northern Maya lands. So that's the first bit of surfing that I did uh, for this one. Uh, is any of this information new to you? Did you assume that there was a, a policy or a script or a format uh, to follow on independence and recognizing new countries? I did, actually. I, um, I, I've, I've come across these kinds of stories in the past. Some, some are more serious than others, of course. And I remember one, there's a guy in, I want to say, Nevada, who has created a country and he like every day he wears like full military regalia. And if I recall, he's like he's pegged the price of his dollars or whatever to Pillsbury cookie dough is what I think it was. So like it's there's like goofy guys like that. And then there's like a more serious one. They even made a, a film about this. There's a offshore World War Two battery uh, a gun emplacement and Later in the 60s, they um, the British government was not handing out radio licenses um, quickly enough for like rock and roll was huge. And so what people would do, they they went out to this fortress, this that was still just sitting there dilapidated since World War Two. And they would begin broadcasting rock and roll music from there, and they didn't have to obey the rules of the British government. And then later they tried to get it and turn it into a nation. And then, like, some of the people that were that were involved, if I'm remembering correctly, like, they, they tried to even have a coup. Like, people got shot. And it's just this crazy story. So, yeah, it's insane. Like, we, we're so tempted, I think, to just say, well, this is just ludicrous. This is ridiculous. But is it any more or any less ridiculous than any nation at some point? Is the population the only thing that gives one legitimacy? Clearly not, because that's why they established these rules. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, you do catch wind of some crazy independence movements like that, like you just mentioned. I've actually heard of that. I forget what, it, what it's called. I didn't know there was a movie based on it, but, you know, any Jack or Jill could make an announcement to the world and suddenly they're a nation. I think 195 would be a really small number of nations if that were the case. So, like, it makes sense that there's some kind of process or filter or something, but the fact that there aren't any established rules is also a little upsetting because... I guess with enough firepower or uh, enough angry people, you could probably get your way. Just ask the British when uh, when they had to confront colonial Americans. <laughs> and, and as the uh, an inheritor of that colonial American rage, 
I'm still a little upset about the tea, Britain, just to be honest. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's my first surf. Uh, what have you got? Last year, I found myself in Philadelphia with an old Navy buddy. We were wandering through town, admiring the beautiful architecture, when he brought up something I literally had no comprehension of whatsoever. The move bombing. As he spun his story, I found my jaw hitting the floor. How on earth had I never heard of this slice of American history before? And just in case you haven't either, the move bombing is where I'm going to launch my first surf. The move bombing. In 1972, a man named Vincent Leaphart founded the black liberation group MOVE. He would later change his name to John Africa, the surname all MOVE members would eventually adopt. MOVE shunned science, medicine, modern technology, and the U.S. government, and advocated for a return to a hunter-gatherer society, preaching human and animal rights. They wore their hair in dreadlocks and identified with Rastafarian religious ideals. They all lived communally in a house in West Philadelphia, but they very quickly earned the ire of their neighbors by standing on the roof with a bullhorn and conducting profanity-laced tirades against the evils of zoos and other institutions they opposed. It wasn't long before they were on the Philadelphia Police Department's radar. In 1977, the police obtained a court order to evict Move from their house. Their neighbors had simply had enough. Move made a deal with the police. They would vacate the house if the police released several of their members from jail. Shockingly, the city actually agreed to do so, but several MOVE members decided to hunker down anyway. Months later, when police moved in, a firefight erupted. One police officer was shot in the neck and killed, and seven other police officers, five firefighters, three MOVE members, and several bystanders were also injured. After about an hour, the MOVE members began surrendering, and one was brutally beaten by the police as he exited the building. Nine of MOVE's members were arrested, and each was sentenced to 100 years in prison on the charge of murder. None have ever been granted parole, and a couple have died in prison. MOVE moved to another row house in West Philadelphia, and were soon up to their old bullhorn shenanigans. Again, the neighbors complained, and again, in 1981, the police showed up. But this time, they found a house with all the windows boarded up. And on the roof, members had built a fortified bunker. The mayor and police commissioner classified MOVE as a terrorist organization. And on the morning of May 13th, 1985, the city shut off the water and electricity to the house, and nearly 500 police officers stormed it. Open fire! They were immediately met with gunfire. The police were prepared this time, hitting the house with tear gas, high-pressure fire hoses, and more than 10,000 rounds of ammunition in just an hour and a half. They eventually ran out of bullets and had to ask the police academy to send more. Still, MOVE refused to budge. And here's where things get truly horrifying. By that afternoon, Mayor Wilson Good, the first African-American mayor of Philadelphia, held a press conference in which he said, I have authorized the authorities to seize control of the house by any means possible. At approximately 5.30 that night, a Pennsylvania state police helicopter flew over top the house, 
and dropped two bombs. The explosive devices, which they got from the FBI, took out the pillbox on the roof, but also ignited a gasoline-powered generator, starting a fire which quickly began to spread across the roof and throughout the house. There were firefighters present on the street below, but they were worried about being shot at. The ones who did want to engage the fire were told to let it burn. The blaze raged out of control for four hours. In the end, it not only destroyed the house in which Moo's members were held up, it had hopped the narrow street and raised between 61 and 65 nearby houses as well. A woman named Ramona Africa and a 13-year-old boy named Michael Moses Ward escaped the Move house when the fire started. Some witnesses claimed others tried to escape as well, but were shot at by the police. Everyone else in the Move house, including John Africa, burned to death. In all, 11 people died, six adults and five children, between the ages of seven and 13. More than 250 people in the neighborhood were left homeless. Philadelphia was given the nickname, the city that bombed itself. Despite several investigations and formal apologies, no one from the city, from the mayor on down to the police commissioner, was ever criminally charged. Ramona Africa, on the other hand, was charged with conspiracy and inciting a riot and spent seven years in prison. A few years after she got out, a federal jury ordered the city of Philadelphia to pay her and Michael Moses Ward $1.5 million as part of a civil suit judgment, saying that the city used excessive force and violated the members' constitutional protections against unreasonable search and seizure. Ramona still lives in Philadelphia and acts as Move's spokesperson. Michael Moses Ward, the only child survivor, got drunk and accidentally drowned in a hot tub aboard a cruise ship in 2013. The neighborhood in which the bombing occurred never recovered. Developers hired by the city to rebuild the damaged homes were sent to jail for mishandling funds and residents complained almost immediately of sagging floors, leaky roofs, inadequate electrical wiring, and faulty plumbing. In the early 2000s, the city finally agreed to buy all the homes, leading to a mass exodus of residents many of whom had lived in that neighborhood for generations. A lone plaque now stands on the street where the bombing occurred, commemorating this dark day in American history. Okay. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, I don't think I had understood the contours of the story before. I, I might have heard, at, heard of the move bombing at some point, but I guess the most mind-blowing part is how... The constitutional protections and rights were thrown out the window really quickly. In this time period, pre-9-11, being classified as a terrorist organization afforded some uh, leeway for authorities to to do stuff that they couldn't do normally, I guess? Yeah, you know what? I'm not sure how things got so out of control beyond simply the fact that this story— um, because it was with like local cops um, and not like the FBI or the ATF, this was not a huge story when it when it first happened. And also, I think one of the main reasons that they got away with this in the beginning was this group was so 
on the fringe. It didn't even fit neatly within normal like black power movement spectrum. So, you know, with their quasi Rastafarian anti-technology pro animal rights, you know, sort of thing. I don't think that they quite knew where to place these guys. And I think just because of all that, this thing just kind of like fell through the cracks. And it wasn't until things went so out of control with the fire that the rest of the world knew what was going on. But before that, um, you know, it was obviously a very different story. And obviously, if something like this happened today, it would be so different. I mean, can you know, think about Ferguson protesters facing off against law enforcement? Like if something like this had happened today, there would have been hundreds of cell phones taping every second of it. And it would have been a far, far different outcome. Yeah, that that is so that's so crazy. I mean, you don't want any violence to happen whatsoever, ideally, but like you'd expect the police to be a little more ginger in these circumstances, especially these people sounded or they sound, I don't want to say cultish, um, like having all their names changed, their surnames changed to Africa, for example. It does feel pretty strange, pretty shocking. I imagine that probably really unsettled some folks, I guess, in that time period, like the police department. Other than the Rastafarian influences, I don't think that there was necessarily an overt religious sort of thing binding them together, but calling them a a cult or at least having cultish a framework absolutely fits here. Wow. Okay. Well, the world is an interesting place. Piss it ever. Uh, Well, shall we we move on in the direction I was going? What have you got for us next? So, while digging around in this Maya independence movement, uh, I came across an American archaeologist named Sylvanus Griswold Morley. Sylvanus Griswold Morley. Uh, Mr. Morley was a Mayanist. That is to say, an archaeologist who specializes in studying the Mesoamerican pre-Columbian Maya civilization. From an early age, Morley was attracted to the field of archaeology and was, in time, attracted to the tales of lost cities in Central America. So he went to Harvard, he got a degree, and he went on to work for decades in the Maya region. His work touched on many sites, including the famous Chichen Itza ruins, and was a cornerstone of Maya studies for decades. He spent considerable time attempting to decipher Maya writing, and was an influence to later archaeologists in this arena, including people who would become the leading experts on Maya writing decipherment. Morley was also able to communicate his enthusiasm for his work to a wider audience. He was kind of famous for his support of others in his field, for aiding in the restoration of Maya sites, and perhaps famous for being an example of what a Central American explorer and scholar should be. He was a bit of an icon. He even had a characteristic hat, a pith helmet, that was associated with him. Uh, He was kind of a real-life Indiana Jones, if you will, as much as I hate to describe any archaeologist that way. But, you know, the description is more apt than it sounds because, apart from being a renowned archaeologist of his age, Morley was also a spy. Using archaeological research as a cover, Morley conducted espionage on behalf of the Office of Naval Intelligence during World War I. He kept an eye out for pro-German, anti-American sentiments and agitations, looked for German bases, and gathered intelligence on movements of German operatives in the region. He produced over 10,000 pages of reports, 
which included detailed coastline charts and political attitudes that could be considered threatening to U.S. interests. Some of his espionage work even benefited U.S. companies. Later, researchers claimed that Morley was, quote, arguably the best secret agent the United States produced during World War I. But not everyone saw Morley's espionage work as a good thing. One famous anthropologist, Franz Boas, the father of modern American anthropology and a huge contributor to the science, he felt that Morley and others like him had, quote, prostituted science by using it as a cover for their activities as spies. Boas's letter of protest was published in The Nation in 1919. In response, the American Anthropologist Association censored Boas for his criticism in a 21 to 10 formal vote just 10 days later. It says something about the urgency of the time and the Great War that the leading anthropologist at the time had to be chastised for his opinion that science should come before espionage. Morley's life would probably make for a very interesting film. He had a couple of close calls, which would play well on camera. In one instance, Morley was nearly discovered while attempting to take pictures of an old Spanish fort. His archaeology credentials didn't seem to convince the local Honduran soldiers of his alibi. Oh, 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 so Morley had to arrange for a letter of introduction signed by the president of Honduras. Only then did the soldiers allow him to continue. Sylvanus Morley loved his work and was very familiar with the Maya, both archaeologically and contemporaneously. He must have had a soft spot for the living Maya at the time, because he did, in a way, lend his assistance to the State of the Cross I mentioned earlier. Uh, the State of the Cross didn't quite end when the Mexican army occupied the region at the beginning of the 20th century. Mayans continued to resist through the 1930s and the 1940s through guerrilla warfare and other means. Eventually, they signed a peace treaty with Mexico in 1935. After the death of a prominent Maya general, General Francisco May, officials representing the Maya state reached out to Washington, D.C., and they initiated diplomatic contact to the Americans through Sylvanus Morley. Morley died in 1948 in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He led a colorful, interesting life and associated with many interesting characters in his time. His tombstone is a simple one, with his name, the dates of his birth and death, and of course, a Maya hieroglyph. The next time I'm in the area, I intend to pay Mr. Morley a visit. Maybe some adventurous production company will turn his story into a film one day. A at any rate, that's the end of my second surf. Uh, Brandon, you like a good spy story? I love a good spy story. And why is it that so many true-life spy stories are tied to archaeologists? You come across these kinds of stories all the time, and it makes me think that people used to live far more interesting lives than we do now. Yeah, that's true, I guess. Uh, maybe it, the archaeology is a really great cover, a, great, a really great natural cover, maybe. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know, I think back to uh, Fawcett, who was searching for the lost city of Z along the Amazon. Um, and he also was a uh, archaeologist and cartographer and whatnot. And he also, during World War One and earlier was hired by the British government to use his cover with the Royal National Geographic Society to spy for them. I and mean, that kind of stuff was really common. Yeah, and maybe maybe like I mentioned earlier with Morley, it's really a kind of commentary on the urgency of the times when the whole world is sort of convulsing in a state of war. Like, I'm trying to think if that's something that would happen today. I don't know. I kind of think that's something that happened 
there's something that may have been a a thing within that time period, within the context of that time period, if that makes sense. But I could be wrong, you know. Like you said, people live far more interesting lives in in some places and times. Well, and as as many people either don't know or or forget, we were doing this up until World War II. Julia Childs. The chef was a spy for the government what? while she was doing, you know, all of her stuff. And that's just not something that, that, you know, you would even remotely like. She's the most least suspected person on the planet. Julia Childs was a spy? What reality have I been living in? That's crazy. Who other, who, what other wholesome people in the world are also, is, was Mr. Rogers a spy? I can, I can tell you another one, though. Dr. Ruth. The famous sex expert. After World War II, she moved to the new state of Israel, if I'm remembering correctly, and she was trained as a scout and a sniper and did that for uh, some amount of time before becoming a sex therapist and and speaker and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of people out there that that are the least suspected deadly people. I, uh... I, I can't wrap my head around that. And I have to. I have one more thing I have to say. Kyle, did I hear you disparage Indiana Jones? Uh, yes. What have you got against Indiana Jones? Indiana Jones is a terrible archaeologist. He was a grave robber and a bad one at that. Doesn't mean he's not fun to watch, but he's a lousy scientist. Kyle, we just lost, you know, the, the 10 people who listen to this podcast. They just bailed on us right now. They're like, yeah, screw this guy. <laughs> If you don't like Indiana Jones, I'm not listening to you. There's a technique to it, and you gotta you gotta follow the technique. Otherwise, you're just a grave robber. Um, anyway, that's Sylvanus Morley, interesting guy. Uh, where did we leave off with you? Well, for my second surf, I took a less narrative and a little bit more of a linguistic turn. So, as I mentioned before, Moves members used bullhorns to conduct profanity-laden tirades from the roof of their house. I decided to click on the link for Wikipedia's page on profanity to see what I might find. And just a reminder to our listeners, it's damn near impossible, see what I did there, to discuss profanity without occasionally referencing the words themselves. Profanity. And I confess, I am a fan of profanity. It's good to be reminded that words have the power to convey strong emotions. That said, I generally try to use them sparingly so they never get diluted or lose their power. It's like someone once said, profanity should be added to your language like a habanero pepper, not poured all over your words like ketchup. This is very sage wisdom, by the way, that my former Navy drill instructor never heeded. We once counted him using the word fuck 96 times in a single boot camp lecture. But what is profanity? Well, according to Wikipedia, profanity is socially offensive, strongly impolite, and rude language. In its more literal sense, profanity refers to a lack of respect for things that are held sacred or deserving of reverence. The term profane originates from the classic Latin profanus, profanus, meaning something that exists outside the temple, secular, or desecrating that which is holy, though in modern times we use it as a far larger umbrella term. In the Middle Ages, certain oaths were believed to actually injure the body of Christ in heaven. Other phrases that incorporated body parts, such as swearing by God's bones, were seen as anti-Eucharist, during which Catholics believed the wafer and the wine physically transform into the body and blood of Christ. To the frustration of both parents and teachers, curses are some of the first words we learn as kids and some of the first words we learn in a new language. Scheiße. Scheiße. 
Now you try. Social scientists have analyzed recorded conversations and deduced that roughly 0.7% of everything the average person says in a given day are swear words. Now, admittedly, that doesn't sound significant, but that's the same percentage we spend on first-person plural pronouns like we and are. Are you fucking serious with this guy? Those who cuss like sailors operate about in the 3% range, which still sounds like a small number, but experts say that's like carrying on a conversation with Eddie Murphy raw. I'm sorry to say that the story you heard growing up about fuck being an abbreviation of for unlawful carnal knowledge is not true. Most of our swear words have Germanic and Anglo-Saxon origins, but they come to us post-Middle Ages, because in the medieval times, curses rarely involved anything sexual or scatological, because people then had far less privacy than we do now, leading to a much less advanced sense of shame. You simply can't get embarrassed about bodily functions when it was common for multiple people to sleep in the same bed, observing both sexual behavior and the use of such items like piss pots. Modern privacy changed all of that and allowed for the rise of sexual and scatological insults. Between men and women, perhaps unsurprisingly, men curse more. Shit, yeah! The women curse far more often if men are not around. Suck a dick, fuck face! And men curse less if women are present. Goddamn right. Studies are mixed on how upper-class people conduct themselves. Some reveal that the strict social rules lead to far less profanity, while others show that the rich and powerful are so secure in their positions, they frequently flaunt their ability to use foul language. I say, you're a son of a bitch. And it's the social strivers, those who want to climb from one economic or social ladder to the next, who mind their P's and Q's. According to Steven Pinker, one of my favorite authors, there are five functions of swearing. Abusive swearing, this is intended to offend, intimidate, or otherwise cause emotional or psychological harm. Go fuck yourself. There's dysphemistic swearing, used to convey that the speaker thinks negatively of a particular subject matter and wants the listener to do the same. Fuck this. There's empathic swearing, intended to draw additional attention to what is considered to be worth paying attention to. Did you see the fucking size of that thing? There's idiomatic swearing, used for no other purpose but as a sign that the conversation and relationship between the speaker and the listener is informal. Fuck yeah, man! And there's cathartic swearing, used in response to pain or misfortune. Fuck, that hurt! A recent scientific study confirmed that subjects who cursed while being inflicted with pain were able to tolerate the pain nearly a minute longer than those who did not. So the next time you hit your thumb with a hammer, cuss away. It really helps. Scientists have also found that people who lose the ability to speak a language due to brain injury can frequently still swear. Swearing seems to come not from the part of the brain where language exists, but rather emotion. Many swear words within a single language are incredibly regional. A Brit will toss out cock and cunt without thinking twice, but the latter remains shocking to most of their cousins across the pond. Americans have long been prudish about swear words. Linguists tell us that the words donkey and rooster were specifically invented in the 18th century so that polite Americans didn't have to say ass or cock anymore, as by that time both had become slang for private parts. 
in the early 19th century, there was no offense greater than calling a woman a bitch, even more so than calling her a whore. Brief side note, swear words all too often exist to malign one gender, but not another. I think you can guess which one. Don't believe me? What is the male equivalent for the word slut? These days, bitch can still sting, but it's omnipresent. In cartoons and comics, profanity is often depicted by substituting symbols for words. These are called grolixes. Likewise, just as all languages utilize profanity, nearly all languages have what are called minced oaths. These are less offensive words that can be used in place of more offensive words. Darn for damn, gosh for God, heck for hell, shoot for shit, and fudge for fuck. But even those can sometimes backfire. Once in middle school, my best friend Chris used the word darn in front of his mom, and he got in every bit as much trouble as he would have had he used the real thing. I recall getting lit into by my mom for using the word PO'd, the common abbreviation for pissed off. Let's just admit that Chris and I had very conservative upbringings. In a very real way, minced oaths are an admission that many swear words are simply synonyms for acceptable words, like shit and fuck for feces and copulation. It's just that as a society, we have agreed that certain words are derogatory and inappropriate. In a way, it's like recognizing that money, which is just a piece of worthless paper and cotton, has value. In Sicily, where I lived for several years, classical and Renaissance statues and paintings frequently lacked genitalia. While the artist had sculpted or drawn anatomically correct figures, others later went through and either broke the offensive pieces off or, more commonly, added fig leaves to cover them up. This action has a literary equivalent. It's called boulderization a pejorative term for the practice of censorship, which involves covering up or purging anything deemed offensive from an artistic work. For example, in the early 19th century, Shakespeare's plays were edited to remove anything that might offend women or children. Away, you starveling, you eel skin, you dried neat's tongue, you bull's pizzle, you stockfish, Oh, for breath to utter what is like thee! You tailor's yard, you sheath, you bow case, you vile standing tuck! My mother continued this fine tradition when she let me read the novelization of Top Gun when I was a kid, but not before taking a magic marker to every single swear word. It was like a redacted CIA document. And of course, there was the sex scene in the middle of the book which I used to hold up to the light, desperate to make out what was going on. George Carlin was once arrested for disturbing the peace when he performed his Seven Dirty Words routine in Milwaukee. And since 1860, it has been and continues to be a finable offense to cuss in public in the state of Virginia. But like everything else, curse words evolve. In 1939, when Rhett Butler told Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That was a really big deal. Now, nothing. Likewise, hell, the religious person's ultimate least favorite place, used to carry extraordinary linguistic weight. But not anymore. Some of the last words to fall were those, not surprisingly, 
with religious connotations. Goddamn, and especially Jesus Christ, hung on for a long time. For a great many people, religion is not taken nearly as seriously anymore. So the blasphemy of taking the Lord's name in vain is now commonplace. Sometimes words fade through lack of use. We find them old-fashioned. For instance, while the word dick used to have a sexual connotation much closer to cock, today it is more likely to be used as a synonym of jerk. I can still remember the first curse word I heard on TV. It was the series finale of Scarecrow and Mrs. King. And Bruce Botleitner, who is about to shoot a murderous Russian agent, says, You bastard. I about fell out of my chair. I could not wait for my mom to get home to tell her what I had just heard. But society no longer places a high value on whether or not your parents were married when you were born. So bastard was one of the first words in modernity to fall. Very few swear words are not allowed on TV anymore. The primary holdout is the granddaddy of all English curses. Fuck. But since we are no longer as outraged by public discussions of sexuality as we once were, it too is seeing its shock potential eroded. And that is because words change and shapeshift, losing their impact, meaning something different or disappearing altogether. And the pace of that change seems to be accelerating. It takes a lot more to gross us out these days. And when curse words lose their power to shock us, it usually means the taboo has as well. New words are needed. So what's left? What will the curse words of the future be? Well, experts say that sociologically abusive words that demean individuals or people groups are not only still offensive, they're actually getting more so. Slurs about someone's ethnicity, weight, sexuality, or mental fitness are actually growing in power. Never, a racial slur typically directed at African Americans, is still deemed so offensive that when discussing it in a clinical sense, we still treat it as radioactive replacing it with the euphemism, the N-word. It used to be commonplace to call someone retarded when they did something stupid. Now that is, thankfully, unacceptable. And I think all of this is a very good thing. It is a recognition that words are not magic spells. No deity will strike you down for saying them. They're not talismans to be feared. They have no more power than what the hearer grants them. But at the same time, the words we still resist say a lot about us. And the fact that these words continue to grow in offensive potential shows that we are growing in our empathy and respect for each other. And that, Kyle, is a great thing. Um, by God's bones. That was an interesting topic, Brandon. You know, I, I got in trouble in grade school for the use of the word bastard. It's a word I picked up from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. <laughs> See, there's Indiana Jones again. You know? Thanks for nothing, Indiana. <laughs> He's still getting you in trouble. No wonder you hate him. Um, you know, I agree that all, these words are all arbitrary. Uh, but I think the reason we're not leaning into that arbitrariness and deciding that these words hold no real power is kind of because no one's in charge of them, you know? And also because, like you said, uh, these words serve a positive function for people in some context. I think you could say that about most subsets of, of words. There's no greater or higher arbitrator of words than the common person. All right. Shall we, uh, shall we kick this can down the road? Yes. Where are we going next? All right. So 
Uh, in my last surf, I talked about archaeologist and spy Sylvanus Smorley, a man very much of two worlds. Uh, he became intimately knowledgeable about the ancient Maya culture and about contemporary Maya and Central American peoples. This is much deeper than your casual vacationer hopping in to see some ruins for a week. Uh, Morley's unique position in life allowed him to tap into geopolitical currents on behalf of various governments. What a rare kind of life he must have led. So I wondered, can anyone else compare as someone straddling two very different cultures so effectively? As someone who's able to affect governments or trade relations or culture, is there someone whose life so dramatically straddles a wide cultural gulf that the story changes the person forever? A gulf that once crossed can never be crossed again. I found just such a person. His name is William Adams. William Adams. An English sailor in the 17th century who became a samurai in Japan. In fact, he was the first of what's called the Western Samurai. And I want to take a moment to contrast the tale I'm about to tell you to the modern lives we live today. By the late 1500s, Europeans had started moving around the world to the Americas, the Far East, Southern Africa. People from these regions would be transported too to faraway places, caught up in the Great Columbian Exchange, a most significant human event that over several centuries stitched back together the long-ago supercontinent of Pangaea. Today, it is nothing for you or I to hop on a plane and in less than 24 hours arrive in Tokyo for some ramen. But even though goods and people and animals and plant life and diseases and trade goods began to flow all over the earth in the 16th century, it still took a lot to get somewhere. And it took a lot out of you. We think of travel as eye-opening and life-changing now, but then it was that a hundredfold. And it was often deadly. If Sylvanus Morley's life deserves to be immortalized in film, then William Adams' life deserves such treatment three times over. In fact, his story has been the basis of several novels, a TV series, a Broadway musical, a couple of video games. But as usual, the real story gets lost once the mass imagination gets a hold of the concept. There's even a very handsome statue of him in Japan, with a full European beard and a graceful, elegant pose. If HBO is hunting around for a miniseries with a full Game of Thrones-style attention and budget, they could do much worse than recreating the story of William Adams. So, how, how English was this guy? Very English. He was born in a place called Gillingham in Kent. At 12 years of age, his father died, and so he began an apprenticeship under a shipyard owner. He learned everything about shipbuilding and navigation for 12 years, and then entered the Royal Navy where he served under Francis Drake during England's war with Spain in the late 1500s. He became a pilot for the Barbary Company after that, a commercial trading company focusing on Morocco. Hmm, there's Morocco again. Once Dutch commercial activity with India began to fire up, William became involved with a Dutch company involved in that trade. At 34 years old, he was attached as a pilot to a fleet of five ships. His brother, also a man of the sea, became involved as well. The five ships are as follows. The Hope, the Charity, the Faith, the Loyalty, and the Good Tiding. Now, as eventful as William's later life will be in Japan, 
This voyage of the five ships would be another kind of eventful, full of tragedy and adventure, but mostly tragedy. They set sail from Rotterdam in 1598 for the Far East. Originally, they were to hop over to the west coast of South America and then move along to the region of Japan before coming back to Europe, getting rich all along the way. But hey, life is full of wrong turns and misadventure. Right off the bat, there was trouble. Wind kept them from making progress, and they landed on an island along the west coast of Africa, a place called Anoban, off the coast of the modern Republic of Equatorial Guinea. They attacked the people of Anoban for supplies, and then made for the Straits of Magellan at the bottom of South America. Only three ships would make it, though. The fleet hit significant weather. The good tiding was disabled and then captured by the Spanish, who the Dutch and the English were at war with at the time. The Faith eventually returned to Europe with only 36 men of a 109-man crew. I know life expectancy for Europeans in this time frame was poor, but it seems sailing on the ocean was a death sentence. After making it through the Straits of Magellan, the fleet tried to regroup at Floriana Island off the coast of Ecuador. Only two ships made it there, the Charity and the Hope. Here, violent encounters with the people of Floriana would claim the lives of 20 men and the captains of both vessels and William's own brother. The remaining crew took the two remaining ships and set sail for Japan, hoping to avoid Spanish or Portuguese ships and hoping, somehow, to squeeze some positives out of this tragic misadventure. The third ship that never made it to Floriana Island, the Loyalty, would instead make it to Indonesia, where the Portuguese discovered them and apparently killed the entire crew. The Dutch and the English, remember, were at war with the Spanish and the Portuguese during this time. Of the two remaining ships, the Charity and the Hope, only one would reach Japan. After a stop at what may have been Hawaii, where eight men deserted, the Hope sank in a typhoon, claiming all aboard. In April of 1600, after nearly 20 months at sea, the Charity limped into the region of Japan, off of the island of Kyushu. There were about 23 men left, although most were dying. Actually, this gets a little confusing. Most of these men must have perished just after reaching Japan, because once they made landfall at Usuki, there were only nine men remaining. On April 19th, the remaining nine men came ashore where they were greeted by Japanese locals. And surprise, Portuguese missionaries were there. These missionaries claimed that William and his shipmates were pirates. They requested that the Japanese execute them. So, not a great welcome to Japan. William and company were imprisoned and their ship was seized. It looked as if all was over for the remaining crew of the charity. It seemed that they could share a similar fate as the crew of their sister ship, the Loyalty. But then something curious happened. A man named Tokugawa Ieyasu, Tokugawa Ieyasu, a prominent figure in the government of the late Toyotomi Hideyoshi, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and one of several acting regents currently ruling after Hideyoshi's death, took an interest in William. Tokugawa was a rising political star, he had distinguished himself as a warrior and a leader in the Hideyoshi power structure. 
and he was the most important of the five regents appointed to look after Hideyoshi's young son after the great leader died. William could not have found a more lucky break than to meet with Tokugawa. You see, it was William's shipbuilding and navigation experience that really saved his life. Tokugawa saw the obvious benefit of keeping William around in Japan. Having no quarrel with the Dutch or the English, Tokugawa ordered the crew of the charity to be released and for them to sail the charity to Edo, Japan's most prominent city. Edo. This is modern-day Tokyo, for those of you keeping track. The charity sank in Japanese waters, too damaged from years of misadventures to continue. Despite the loss, Tokugawa ordered William and his crew to build ships for him, and they did, successfully creating Japan's first Western-style sailing ship. Tokugawa gave one of the ships he requested to a random bunch of shiprock Spaniards, and with 22 Japanese officials, sailed it to New Spain, modern-day Mexico, to establish relations with the Spanish Empire. William would continue to remain in Tokugawa's service, even after his shipmates were allowed to leave in and around 1605. Some of his shipmates stayed and were rewarded with favors allowing them to engage in foreign trade. William himself was involved in Japan's efforts to establish trade relations with the Spanish Empire. William personally contacted the Spanish governor of the Philippines on behalf of Tokugawa to help with Japanese-Spanish relations. He was given permission to engage in foreign trade from his base in Japan. He became further esteemed with Tokugawa and was rewarded by becoming a trade diplomatic advisor. Eventually, William became the advisor on all things relating to the West and the official translator. William's life sounds very lucky indeed. Most of William's traveling companions were dead. His adventures brought him to the other side of the planet, no small feat in the 1600s. And now he was a rising person of influence in Japan, well-liked by Japan's leadership and making crucial gains for Japan with the nations of Western Europe. But it wasn't what he would have wanted. He wasn't allowed to leave Japan, really, except on official Japanese business. He left a wife and children back home in England, too. Even though William was paid handsomely by Tokugawa, he sent some of that money back home to England to support his family. One day, Tokugawa gave William two swords representing the authority of the samurai. He declared that William Adams was dead and a new person, Miura Anjin, was born in his place. Miura Anjin. He was declared a Hatamoto, Hatamoto, a samurai in the direct service of the Tokugawa shogunate. This effectively made Adams' wife a widow, although William uh, Miura continued to send financial support back home. Miura Anjin had an extraordinary life. He established an estate in Edo Bay. He married a daughter of an important Japanese official, and they had a son together. He was influential in opening up trade opportunities for the Dutch and the English. In dealing with English trade, Miura had the opportunity to go home, and even received permission from Tokugawa. But he decided against it for a host of reasons, some of which revolved around dislike for one of the captains he met in the English delegation. In other matters, Miura tried to organize an expedition to find the Northwest Passage and organized various trade expeditions to places like Thailand and Vietnam. Much like Miura's five-ship expedition that brought him to Japan, each of these trade missions were many adventures unto themselves. Miura died in 1620 at the age of 55, and he was buried in Japan. He was survived by his Japanese wife and child and by only two remaining shipmates from the charity. 
Miura's Japanese son continued to trade and operate in his name until Japan closed the country in 1635. His grave marker in Nagasaki Prefecture has a Christian cross carved into it, kind of a mirror to the tombstone of Sylvanus Morley in New Mexico. There are several places in Japan named in Miura's honor, and there is an annual Miura Anjin festival every year on the 10th of August in certain parts of the country. Although there is a lot of detail missing from his life, we can still see what an extraordinary life it must have been. He surrendered completely to Japanese culture, becoming fluent in the language, working on behalf of the shogunate, even declining to return to England when the opportunity arose. I know this deep level of enculturation happens all the time now, and indeed must have been a distinct human experience throughout the existence of our species, ever since there was more than one culture in the world. But an experience such as this, becoming a valued participant in a foreign government, a a samurai? This must have been a rare thing in the annals of history. And that's it. That's the end of my surf. An interesting tale. Uh, how does William Adams' life strike you? That is amazing. That's That guy's life is crazy. Okay, you said his life has been made into like a movie, Broadway plays, video games. Like, If all of that's the case, why the heck have I not heard from him or heard of him? I, I know, me too. Like, I was reading the Wikipedia page and it's like represent his representation in media and I was just like, what are you talking about? I've never seen any of this stuff. How is that possible? But there's at least one popular TV show, I think from the 80s, is sort of loosely based on his life. Uh, but really, the details are not there, and, you know, I think someone should take another another stab at it. It would make a really incredible film. I agree. I believe it was called Shogun, and I believe it was Richard Chamberlain. I bet that's the show that you're thinking about. But, uh, yeah, that's, you know, there's something about stories in which we remove someone from one culture and insert them into another culture. Those are some of my favorite kinds of stories. That's amazing. I thought I knew I knew where your story was about to go, but you didn't. There's another guy, um, Yusuku, Yusuki, something like that. Um, he was an African who served under a uh, Japanese warlord and became a samurai in um, the mid to late 1500s, which to me sounds like some sort of Quentin Tarantino movie just waiting to be made. Oh, man. Tarantino would tear that up, wouldn't he? Totally. <laughs> Uh, it's sort of like a side note, but uh, when Japan cl- closed the country, there were samurai abroad doing uh, a variety of things. And because of the attempt to establish relations with the Spanish Empire, there were samurai in Mexico. What? When, when Japan closed its borders, those samurai were locked out of the country, so they ended up working for the Spanish. They were uh, escorting convoys of uh, gold that was being mined in the Americas through Mexico, protecting it. And these samurai sort of took a second life. It just tells, it just shows you the world is insane. Like, the people were starting to move around during this time period, and they started plugging into places that they probably couldn't even remotely imagine. And for a Japanese samurai or an English sailor to wind up on the other side of the planet and get plugged into the, to the, to the growing, the changing system like that, it just, it's mind-blowing, man. It's mind-blowing. It's fascinating. It just goes to show what, what magical permutations of stories occur when suddenly humanity finds itself able to move back and forth across oceans or in our age fly to different places like can you imagine being some mexican peasant and having some samurai walking around dressed in his armor 
with a sword, you would that'd be like an alien. You would you'd have no context for that whatsoever. No, not at all. It sounds it sounds glorious. I'd love to see it on screen. Totally. Yeah, this story. That's awesome. I want to go do some research into this guy because this is great. Well, uh, let's uh, let's move on from Mr. Adams to see what else you have. Well, I am going to stay with profanity. And Kyle, if you have a problem with that, you can go frack a Garam Shazbot. Now, you may recognize one or more of those words. For my final surf, I chose a link from the Wikipedia profanity page that sounded like a lot of fun. Profanity in science fiction. Profanity in science fiction. Turns out people in sci-fi television shows and books have real potty mouths. On Mork and Mindy, everyone's favorite Orkin preferred expression was Shazbot. On Farscape, John Crichton and Comforty preferred Frell and Dren. Frag was a popular exclamation on Babylon 5. Red Dwarf's favorite profanity is Smeg, Goit, and Gimboid. Josh Wheaton's Firefly was famous for cursing in Mandarin and Cantonese, and also using the word Goram as a replacement for Goddamn. The 1978 Battlestar Galactica used Feldercarb, while the popular remake famously substituted Frack for Fuck. On Star Trek, a Klingon insult is Patak. On Doctor Who, it's Kruk. And on Star Wars, we get Stang, Fearfeck, and Sith Spawn. And most importantly, Douglas Adam tells us in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that, quote, In today's modern galaxy, there is, of course, very little still held to be unspeakable. But there is one word that is still beyond the pale. The concept it embodies is so revolting that the publication or broadcast of the word is utterly forbidden in all parts of the galaxy except one where they don't know what it means. That word is Belgium. With the exception of this final example, all of these curse words are considered nonce words or meaningless and disposable words invented for a single occasion to solve an immediate problem of communication. Think Dr. Seuss. He elevated the creation of nonce words to an art. Lewis Carroll's poem Jabberwocky is full of nonce words like galumping and chortle, which is a blend of chuckle and snort which, ironically, is now a word in common use. James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake invented the word quark, and a half century later, physicist Murray Gelman adopted this word as his name of a subatomic particle. In the same way, some of science fiction's made-up swear words have broken out of their imaginary pens and found their way into common usage. The reason for using these words on television is two-pronged. It allows for more believable world building. More importantly, it also allows for the ability to use profanity with words that can be immediately contextualized and understood as synonymous with real profanities without ever running afoul of network censorship or broadcasting restrictions. There are no such restrictions in science fiction novels, though they pop up just as often, as when Larry Niven in his Ringworld series uses Tonge an abbreviation for There Ain't No Justice. Terry Pratchett used Gritsucker in Discworld. Now, not everyone thinks this is a good idea. Orson Scott Card, the author of Ender's Game, said that Niven's use of the word Tonge was a noble experiment that, quote, proved that euphemisms are often worse than the crudities they replace because they make stories look silly. 
Now, if I understand him correctly, they don't work because they look silly. And I think they look silly to him because they call attention to themselves since they were made up. Dr. Ruth Wanjnrib is an applied linguist, researcher, and writer who shares Card's opinion. For her, these profanities don't work precisely because they are not real words. They lack heft and gravity because they are made up. In her words, they are, quote, Just a futile attempt to give clean-cut stories some foul-mouthed action. But Kyle, aren't all words made up? Aren't all words silly until we begin using them? I much more agree with Wanda Rayford, an English professor in Florida, who thinks that the nonce word frack is an indispensable part of the naturalistic tone that BSG strives to achieve. She also points out that the show refers to humanity's robotic adversaries as toasters, which allows the show to also use obscene and racist dialogue, think the N-word, granting it a far deeper commentary and resonance. I should also point out that profanity in sci-fi also includes the idea of things that alien cultures might find profane. And this one is really fascinating because it makes use of the idea that what humans might not find profane, other alien cultures do. And we don't have to look very far to find this same sort of thing playing out within different human cultures, which is why this idea works so well. On an episode of Star Trek Enterprise, a diplomatic incident occurs because an alien race arrives at the ship's galley to discover everyone doing what humans do in galleys, eating. But for this alien race, eating in public is considered vulgar and taboo. For them, pornography would not be people having sex, but rather people eating together. And that's where I wiped out, Kyle. I started with the move bombing in Philadelphia. I used their vulgarity-laden tirades to surf over to Wikipedia's page on the history of profanity and ended with a fun and quirky look at how profanity is created and used in science fiction. Uh, fantastic topic, sir. I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't know that there was that much legwork on fake science fiction curse words. Well done. And nor I. Thank you very much. Your, your stories were phenomenal as well. I think the surf is done. Let's get these boards out of the water and uh, meet back here uh, next time. Belgium. Belgium. Fracking Belgium. Welcome to the credits. Thanks to the National Archives, the U.S. Army Strings, and the Navy Band. Thanks to Annalise Baer for Latin pronunciation, and Shino Fibs, hey, that's my sister-in-law, for the Japanese pronunciations. Thanks to all of the episode's many voice actors, Tim Gordon, Jeff Almeida, Jeremy Bridgman, Shoshana Rosenberg, Janine Hogan, Yancey Scott Strickland, and Anya Hines. With particular thanks to Jack Currenton, who played Shakespeare's Falstaff, and is the star of the Audience Choice winner for Best Star Wars Fan Film for two years running. To Matt Kirshen, a last comic standing favorite and a writer and performer on Comedy Central's The Jim Jeffries Show, who portrayed the great Douglas Adams, and to Mal and Eddie Fernandez for their exquisite potty mouths. A very special thank you to Patrick and Beth Sullivan, retired members of the U.S. Army Band, for their dulcet tones in the nation-building segment. And thanks to Gabby and Helen Phibbs hey, that's us. for reading the credits. See, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> Did you see the fucking size of that thing? 
Hey, yo, bitch, frankly, I don't give a fuck. This concludes this session of cursing with Mal and Eddie. Oh, we have like 10 seconds of silence at the end. And here comes 10 seconds of silence. Go fuck yourself. Fuck off! <laughs>